Hey, thanks for joining us here at the Vineyard Church Podcast. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. There's a lot of great resources there that are free and will help you grow closer to God and help you connect with the church. Right now, let's go to our executive director, Julie Meredith, for this week's message. Well, welcome from wherever you're tuning in today. If you're new with us, thanks for joining us. And if you've been around a while, thank you so much for continuing on this journey through the book of Mark as we take a look at the life of Jesus. So I want you to imagine with me for a minute uh, today that you run into Jesus and you have a chance to chat with him and uh, you're talking and talking. Then he gets a call and you realize he's going to have to go. So you think, man, I might not get this chance again one-on-one to talk with him, but you have a minute for a final question to ask him. What would you ask Jesus if you could ask him a final question? So today, we're going to pick up in the book of Mark where we left off in chapter 12, and we're going to be hearing a conversation that Jesus had with a man who got to look Jesus in the eye and ask him a final question. So for a little bit of context, up until this point, uh, Jesus has been questioned over and over by the really smart religious people. And over and over, Jesus either stumps them or he kind of just shuts them down because he's brilliant. And um, today, this conversation is the final time that this happens. In fact, the very last verse of the section we're going to look at today says this, Mark 12, 34. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. So we're going to go ahead and read the whole conversation, and then we're going to go back and take a little bit of a closer look at most of this section today. So we're going to start in Mark chapter 12 and verse 28, and it says this. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. Well said, the man teacher, the man replied. You're right in saying that God is one, and there's no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Now, how many of us have read this or heard this before, right? Like you, you're thinking, yeah, love God, love others. Isn't that kind of the message? I've, I've got this, right? Like we can just go home early today. Well, Here's the thing. Something I've found over the years is this book, this Bible, is truly a living word. And in Hebrews 4.12, it says this. It says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And in Matthew 4, 4, Jesus says, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So this word of God, it's sustenance and it's alive and it's active. And as many times as we read any part of it, it can speak to us and offer us new insight because God speaks to us through his word where we are and in the moment we're in. 
So I hope that today as we kind of meditate on God's word together, we're going to hear from God and really find it truly life-giving as Jesus has said it can be. So we're going to go back and start in Mark 12, verse 28, and begin to break this down a little bit. So it says, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Now, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now, a conversation about the commandments would not have been unusual. There were over 600 commandments in the Jewish law, and the teachers of the law and other religious leaders at the time spent a lot of their time debating about which commands are the most important. And this kind of made sense. They're the teachers of the law. They wanted to get it right. So this teacher, and sometimes it's translated a scribe or an expert in the law, He comes to Jesus being extremely familiar with all these commandments, and he's basically saying, which rule is the most important to follow? And stop a minute and think about your life, my life. You know, maybe you've been coming to church for a while. Maybe you're new, but you've heard about the Christian faith, and you've probably heard there are guidelines, there are rules that God has set up that are part of living the Christian life in this world. And we can quickly start to do what this guy did. You know, we can quickly start to say, what are the non-negotiables? Like, how strictly do I have to follow the rules? And what are the loopholes? You know, we kind of make Christianity into this religious kind of game. So Jesus goes on and he answers this teacher, this expert of the law, and he says, the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And here's the thing. All the people listening to this conversation that day would have been very familiar with what Jesus just said because Jesus was quoting some verses from the Old Testament that this teacher of the law and every other Jewish person there had just recited that morning because every Jew would recite these verses plus a few more two times a day, morning and evening. They were from the book of Deuteronomy and they were referred to as the Shema because that first word in these verses that we translate as here is the word Shema. And in this context, this word in Hebrew means to hear and to obey. So in in implying this, these verses are a call to hear and obey the truth and the command that are about to be said. And it's even recorded that they would often put their hand over their eyes as they recited these words to make sure that they were focused and that they weren't distracted. So this was extremely familiar. It wasn't new to them. However, that first sentence that Jesus quotes isn't a command. It's a statement. He says, again, remember, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And Jesus could have skipped this and and still communicated the commandment, but he didn't. It's a very intentional statement because there's a big difference in these two terms, God and Lord. See, first in stating that God or theos in, in the Greek is one, Jesus was clarifying that God, the creator, even in his triune form, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, is one entity, not many, because at the time, much of the culture believed in multiple gods. And perhaps most important, he doesn't say the Lord our God is one God. He says the Lord our God is one Lord. And that word Lord here specifies and refers to the one who's not only our creator, but who is the supremacy or the authority over someone or something else. So with this statement, Jesus is reminding them and us 
that the one God is not only our creator, but we are supposed to recognize him as the authority, the Lord over the fullness of our lives. It becomes very personal when Jesus makes this statement. Now, I know I had... um, a time in my life, and, and maybe you guys can relate at some point in time, when I knew a lot about God, I'd been in church for years, I could talk about God, I'd read the Bible, I would even say I believed in God. But I, God wasn't my Lord. I, I was my own Lord. You know, I was calling the shots. And multiple times in this series already, we've pointed out that even the demons acknowledge God, that, that they said, yeah, we know Jesus is God. They believed this. So we can believe there's a God, there's a creator, yet not have him as the Lord of our life. See, we can believe not only is he God, we can like that he's God. We can even say, I, I, I recognize that he's got a place, you know, in this world. Honestly, some of us may not even recognize that we're living like this when we do this. When we say, yeah, I claim he's God, he's got a place in this world, but he's not your Lord. And the next thing that Jesus says explains how we demonstrate that he's not only God to us, but he's Lord of our lives. And it's summed up in the greatest commandment. And he says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And again, Jesus uses that word Lord, love the Lord your God. And he covers all the bases. He's saying with all your emotion, with all your relation to other people, with all your thinking, with all your decision-making, with all your physical ability, with all your capacity, in every aspect of our life, we're to regard him as Lord. And over and over throughout the Bible, we're told that it's our obedience to God, to Jesus, that demonstrates that we love him. But instead of reading all the verses that tell us this, I want to look at how we can position ourselves to do this. How do we position ourselves to walk in obedience to God, to Jesus? Let me share a little illustration that might give us a picture of this. So imagine that this circle um, represents the whole of your life, and something or someone will be at the center of your life on the throne. So we've got the image of the throne. And whoever or whatever is on that throne will be who or what directs you. So think of all the things that make up your life, all the different aspects of your life. Maybe it's a job, or maybe you're retired and it's what you're doing in retirement. Maybe it's school, which consumes a lot of hours of your life when you're in school. Maybe it's a hobby you enjoy or entertainment, gaming, something like that. Maybe it's sports. Either you're an athlete or you have a team that you follow and you're a huge advocate for that team. Maybe God is part of your life. Probably, if you're here or you're listening. Maybe politics. In fact, this day and age, it's hard to get through a day without politics being some part of your world, right? Maybe a social cause, health, friends, family. Think of all the things that make up your life. And depending on the day, all of these or some of these or one of these sits on the throne of your life and helps you make decisions about how you're going to live that day or that season of your life. And God may be up there with the other things. It's not that you don't include God. It's just that he ends up being sort of one of many. Depending on the day, he's either front and center or he's back somewhere behind the other things. Sometimes we kind of shove him off the throne and, and something else takes the center seat there. Again, it's not that we don't recognize God or value God. It's just that we're divided. We offer God a spot on the throne alongside all these other things, but he isn't Lord of the throne of our life. 
And the thing is, all these other things in our lives that are part of our lives, God knows this. He knows they need our time. They need our attention. We're supposed to care about them, to tend to them. He even, I believe, enjoys watching us pursue the things that he designed us to pursue, that he's given us a passion for, like a good father watching his child live his life well. So what makes God Lord of our lives? How do we position ourselves that way? Well, he becomes Lord of your life when he alone sits on the throne of your life. We don't rid ourselves of all these other aspects, but they don't get to have the authority. See, anything good in life that is not God is a gift to be managed, not another God to manage us. Another way to say it is this. When other things determine how much of your life God gets, those things are Lord. But when God determines how much of your life the other things get, then he is Lord. I have some friends who, they don't live in in West Virginia, but it's a husband and wife. They have three little girls. And um, he took a job about seven months ago, and he loved it right away. And he was thriving in it. In fact, he had done so well in his job that in just six months, he won the annual award in his state for the job he was doing. And then recently, a few weeks ago, his, his boss called him in and offered him a management position and a huge raise. And then about a week later, he heard that that company his company, was making decisions and setting some standards about what was required to be employed there. And one of these standards, my friend recognized, was going to violate his commitment as a Christian, as a Christ follower. Suddenly, he realized, I'm going to either lose my job or I'm going to have to bend to their rules. And after a lot of prayer and he and his wife talking and talking, they both agreed that if he bent to the rules of this company, he would be putting his job and their finances and their security on the throne of his life and pushing God back to the side or off. Now, let me interrupt myself to say this. He said I could share this, but he also said I wouldn't tell anyone else they should do just what I did. What I would tell them they should do that I did is pursue God and ask him what to do. But anyway, so he wrote a letter to his company explaining his faith and how what they were asking would violate his faith. But ultimately, they fired him. But on his last day, his boss called him in. And his boss is this stoic, very serious, tough, but very successful leader. My friend had never really had like a personal human kind of conversation with him. But on this day, the boss said to my friend, we cannot believe we're losing you. We're not going to be able to replace you. Your work and your work ethic has been unbelievable. Even training your replacement last minute up, up through this day and he said, and, and on top of it, you're carrying on so professionally. You're not spreading the news and creating discord and telling everyone what's going on. Like you're acting like everything's fine. I don't get it. We've offered you a promotion. We've offered you an increase in your wage. Why don't you just comply with our rules? Why don't you just do that and stay? And my friend looked at him and said, you know, it is crushing me that I'm leaving this job. I love this job. And he said, you know, this was my long term. I thought I was going to retire from this job. And then he said, but God and my wife and my family, they're my long, long term. And I love them more. And, you know, unlike the movies, (laughs) he lost his job. Um, But you know what his boss went on to say that day? And this was amazing to him. He said, you know, 
I wish that years ago, I had had the resolve that you had because I upheaved my family so many times, bending to the demands and thought I almost lost my marriage at one point. Now, again, he is extremely up. He did not want to lose this job. He wanted the job. He's very sad that he lost this job. But I can tell you this. In the last couple of weeks, he has seen so many amazing relational blessings and other blessings come. He has had people out of nowhere call him, hearing this, and say, hey, here's a job lead. He's had multiple interviews already. And here's what he would say. He'd say, I still wish I had that job. But he never would have experienced what God is showing him over these two weeks if he had allowed his job and his finances to sit on the throne of his life instead of Jesus. See, when we sacrifice the best that we've been offered, which is God as Lord on the altar of good, of something else good, we come up short. But when we're willing to give up even something good that we really like for the sake of allowing God to be Lord of our lives, this is loving him with all that we are. And it might even be a fair question to ask ourselves, can you truly love God if he's not your Lord? So Jesus has established this as the first and greatest command, and he could have been done. He's answered the question that the guy asked, but he's not done answering. So he adds this in verse 31 of Mark 12. He says, and the second is this, and some translations say the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So the first question is, well, then who's my neighbor? You know, is it literally the person next door or two doors down or three? Like if I go seven doors, do they not really count anymore as my neighbor? Or like if I'm an introvert, I live in the country, do I have to claim any neighbors? You know, I mean, do, do I have to have a neighbor? Well, the word for neighbor in these verses means more than someone who lives nearby. Here's one definition from a Greek dictionary. It says, the term indicates primarily an outward nearness or proximity that someone who is outwardly near us should be the object of our concern, in spite of the fact that there is no tie of kindred or nation between us. So our neighbor is kind of anyone we encounter. And there's this parable that Jesus tells that I bet most of us, if not all of us, have at least heard of. We call it the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in telling the story, Jesus uses the same word for neighbor as he uses in Mark. And he really lays out what it means to be a neighbor and what he means when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this parable is only found in, in the book of Luke, and it's in chapter 10. We're going to take a quick look at it and listen to how similar this situation is to the conversation that Jesus is having with this teacher of the law that we've met in the book of Mark. So it says this in Luke 10, 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And in their context, this is very similar to the question, what's the most important command, you know, to follow God? And Jesus responds this time by turning around the question, turning it back to this guy. And he says to the law expert, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. It sounds just like this other conversation, right? So he goes on and Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So again, Jesus has answered. The conversation could be over, but this time the expert in the law continues it. And he says, 
But he wanted to, or it says, he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus tells a story. He said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And as he launches into the story, he immediately sets a scene that would have been an instant image, again, for the people listening that we might not know if we didn't look into it. And this is it. That road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a well-known road, and it was considered extremely dangerous. It was very steep. It was windy. It had dramatic drop-offs. It was a road where robbers would hide and attack people. So Jesus starts out this kind of dramatic story that this guy is on this road, and he continues. He says, and he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, in the same chapter of the Bible, Leviticus 19, that this expert in the law has just quoted when he said, love your neighbor as yourself, it also says, love the stranger or the foreigner as yourself. And this priest and this Levite, they would have known this. They would have had that part of the Bible memorized. However, if the man was actually dead and they touched him, then they would have also been ceremonially unclean. That was another law which would have meant that they couldn't have carried on with the plans that they might have had that day. So then Jesus goes on with his story, and he says, But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And just the mention of a Samaritan would have rubbed his listeners wrong, because the Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritan was like a cuss word to them. They were the enemy. But Jesus goes on, and he says, And when he, the Samaritan, saw him, He took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Now, I want to tell you, if this was any of our um, safety team leaders or our safety team, they would have had like the full-blown first aid kit, you know, like tourniquets, bandages, antiseptics, hemostatic gauze, all this stuff. But I'm sure this guy didn't have tourniquets and hemostatic gauze. So he's like using his own stuff, maybe his own clothes, to, to tend to this man's wounds. You know, he's using his own resources. He's putting them on his own animal. He would have had this guy's blood all over him. I mean, this is amazing care for someone who would have called him the enemy. But Jesus isn't done. He continues the story about who a neighbor is. And he says, the next day he took out two denarii. So he spent the the night to make sure this guy's okay. And two denarii was at least two weeks, maybe up to two months of pay, of wages. So a lot of money. And he gave them to the innkeeper and said, look after him. And he said, when I return... I'll reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. And now watch what Jesus does as he wraps up this conversation. Remember, the question the expert of the law asked was, and who is my neighbor? But now Jesus turns it around again and asks the question, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. See, it's not simply about recognizing who your neighbor is. It's about responding to the neighbor that you recognize. See, based on the definition of neighbor, all three men could have been accurately described as a neighbor to the beaten up half-dead man. I mean, they were all literally physically near him. 
but only one responded with love. And the story ends with Jesus saying, go and do likewise. Again, not simply recognizing who your neighbor is, but about responding to the neighbor that you recognize. Now, if you're still with me, you're still listening, and someone has come to mind as you've been listening, and and God is kind of nudging you and telling you, hey, this is who you need to be a neighbor to. There's someone in your life. And you are thinking, you know, I can't imagine doing this. I can't imagine treating someone with that kind of love. Well, this is why loving our neighbor is not the first command. Jesus said the second command was like the first command, but it's not the first command. If we rely on our own ability to love, we will at best get worn out. And more likely, we will become very selfish as we give and give and give and expect something we may never get in return. When Jesus is explaining these commandments, the word he used for love is the word agape. And when agape, or, or when Jesus introduced agape, this was a fairly new term at the time, mostly unknown until Jesus really used it. Because agape is God's selfless love that he was introducing. It's a benevolent love. And here's a definition. Divine love characterized by sacrifice in pursuit of another's good. Another way to say this is agape love isn't giving someone what they want, but giving someone what they need, even at the expense of the giver. And it's the same word that's used in John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He gave what we needed him to give at his expense for our gain. And that first commandment gives us access to this benevolent agape love to then love our neighbor with. So the second commandment is very distinct from and actually dependent on the first commandment. Um, There's a guy named John Bloom. He's a writer for the ministry called Desiring God. And he put it this way, the most loving thing we can do for others is love God more than we love them. For if we love God most, we will love others best. Now, have you ever thought about the fact that someone else's need of help provides you an opportunity to actually love your neighbor? There's a group of of women um, in our church who have been getting together for quite a while now, for years now, and recently one of them, Patty, was diagnosed with pretty severe cancer. And she's on her own, so one of these other women, Colleen, her friend, has come alongside her, taken her to doctor's appointments, made sure she has the food that she can actually eat because so often treatments mess with what you can even eat. She's monitored her visitors, and I could go on and on, but she has loved her sister in Christ with the love of God. And Patty said this about Colleen. She said, she, Colleen, sure has been a blessing in my life. I don't know how anyone gets through this without the love of Jesus. See, Colleen didn't just recognize Patty's need, she responded to it. And Patty knows that it's not just from herself. Patty knows that Colleen's been able to come alongside and do this because Colleen has put God as Lord of her life on the throne of her life. It's the love of Jesus that's equipping and coming through her. Loving others with this agape love will often be an interruption It will often cost you, take time. It will cause others to question you, maybe to criticize you even. It may leave you with no recognition, no thanks. But 
it will always, always offer the person receiving this love a glimpse of the love of God. Now, I want to go back to the final verses in the text of Mark that we began with today. Jesus has just stated the two greatest commands, and when the teacher of the law agrees with Jesus, Jesus says this to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And I think this was true in two ways. You know, this guy who was talking to Jesus, I, I was literally physically not far from the kingdom of God. He was speaking with the embodiment, Jesus, of the kingdom of God, and also, because he had knowledge and intellect and understanding of what it means to be part of the kingdom of God, he was close, but until God, until Jesus was Lord of his life, he was just close. To be part of the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, God has to be Lord. And when God would become Lord, the evidence of the man's life would reveal it. Someone once said, if you were on trial as a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? That is such a sobering thought to me. Maybe not to you. You, you may be, you have this down like way better than me. I hope so. But that is so sobering to me. And remember, when other things determine how much of your life God gets, those things are Lord. But when God determines how much of your life the other things get, he is Lord. What matters is who sits on the throne of your life. Who's calling the shots? You know, earlier I mentioned um, Hebrews 4.12 that tells us the deep value of the word of God. And just a few verses after that, we read something very profound about the throne of God, the throne of Jesus, which is explained in those verses. In Hebrews 4.16, it says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, Jesus sits on a throne, not of condemnation, but of grace. When he is on the throne of your life and you approach him to learn the direction to take with your life, he answers, he directs you from a place of grace and mercy. Listen to how grace is defined. Unearned, unmerited favor, a favor done without expectation of return, absolute freeness of the loving kindness of God to men. Guys, we live in a nation that looks like unlike any, that it looks unlike the nation that I've lived in until just about, you know, a year and a half ago. And even though I'm only 29, you know, that's almost three decades. You're laughing. Why are you laughing? No. But seriously, our world is crazy. You know, in these last couple of years, hate, destruction, division, condemnation, depression, suicide, loneliness, They've gone off the charts. There is so much divisiveness, so much fear. And I bet if your days are anything like mine, you spend more than enough time hearing and talking about the craziness, the mess of our world. My friend Vicki the other day said to me, you need to start listening to more worship music and less of that talk show stuff. And she's right. And that's one reason we didn't spend this little bit of time going down that road for, for our whole time together this morning. I hope this is a time when you can really focus in on the word of God, his unchanging truth, his steadfastness. I hope you can be reminded there's hope. Because if you belong to God, if he is your Lord, if th th this isn't your home anyway, you know, your home is where Jesus is, where God is literally sitting on the throne of grace. It's just going to take us a little while to get there. 
But in the meantime, while we're here, what we need to recognize is that people are desperate for this love. Not a love that simply says, how can I make you feel better for 10 minutes or for today? Right? But that agape love, that sincere love that offers them a chance to meet the only unchanging, all-loving, benevolent God and Lord. And the only way to offer them this is to allow God to be your Lord, to sit on the throne of your life, a throne of grace, and allow him to reveal himself through you. Let's pray. Lord, God, I pray that uh, when we take these times together and to dig into your word and to consider you, Lord, that you would then give us the eyes, give us the ears to see and hear those you are calling us to be a neighbor to. And God, that your love would pour out of us um, in such a way that it's just irrepressible, God, that people can't avoid seeing you. God, help us to keep you front and center on the throne as Lord of our lives. Amen. Thanks again for joining us here at The Vineyard. It's our greatest desire to see you find and follow God, and we hope that this podcast has helped you do just that. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. Again, thanks for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.